Welcome to season two of Unstoppable Minds, a University of Florida podcast that looks at the big challenges we face in the world and how members of the UF community boldly tackle them. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen, an assistant professor of computer and information science and engineering at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom, a lecturer in the engineering education department in the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. Big discoveries don't happen without overcoming formidable challenges. So we're sitting down with some of our colleagues at UF who are leading the way in identifying creative solutions in research, student success, and academic exploration in their unstoppable quest for knowledge. On this episode, we have Dr. Sherlene Clawson, who is a full professor and the chair of the Department of Occupational Therapy in the College of Public Health and Health Professions. Welcome, Dr. Clawson. Hello, Kyla. Hello, Jeremy. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So... Dr. Clausen is looking at how she can help to empower other drivers who are at medically at risk groups. So we're going to, we'd love to hear more about what you're doing in the Department of Occupational Therapy around this whole business of autonomous driving and autonomous vehicles. So if we think about an autonomous vehicle, one of the first images that comes to mind is the the Google self-driving car that we have seen ample images of. Um, But there's actually a variety of forms that autonomous vehicles are uh, presenting themselves, and there's six levels of autonomy. So um, level zero is where there's absolutely no autonomous features in a vehicle. And then level level five, the highest form, means that the vehicle is fully automated or highly automated, and it can essentially drive itself on any road, and uh, it's not dependent on any of the functions of the driver. So the driver becomes a passenger who can turn its back on the road and take a nap. So, um, so, and of course, there are various levels in between with various characteristics that I'm happy to elaborate on if you want to know more about that. I remember when we were originally talking about, you know, interviewing you, um, discussing how a lot of this work relates pretty significantly to the aging population and helping them feel comfortable on the road. Um, and you know, when I think about my parents in particular and how they are aging, you know, I I understand why people ultimately take away their parents' keys or try to encourage them to not be on the road as often. And your work is really trying to make sure that that's not even going to be a conversation that really needs to be had. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are trying to empower people to be able to stay on the road as long as possible and as safe as possible, which is very consistent with the philosophy of occupational therapy. So as an occupational therapist, I want to make sure that the challenges and the opportunities that the environment brings to the person are of such that their abilities can meet those challenges. So if we if we take that um example and we apply it to all the drivers, then we need to make sure that the challenges of the driving environment is still well within the capabilities and ability levels of the older drivers. And so there's traditional ways in which we are doing that. 
um, currently, for example, to do behind-the-wheel training or to do some thinking exercises or some reaction time exercises or helping folks to be able to compensate for a deficit, such as, for example, if you know um, they have an issue with uh, loss of peripheral vision, which is the outer edges of your of your vision. We can help them to, to, to learn how to scan the environment by compensating with head and neck movements. And so those are some of the traditional approaches. But then, you know, what is exciting is that the advanced technology and the evolving technology um, is now spilling over into the area of vehicles. And that means that many of these technologies will be able to automatically compensate for some of the deficits of the older drivers. So there's a lot of potential there, but it also means that we need to be very sure that folks can, you know, independently engage in um, in these highly autonomous vehicles or different levels of autonomy. So it sounds like you have two uh, research tracks going on at the same time, like one with the driving simulator to restore and help people to practice, and then the other to allow um, autonomous vehicles to be able to help older adults. So um, with both of these going together, like I, I could imagine like both of these efforts mean, being very meaningful for older adults. So can you talk a bit more about like anecdotal cases of people who you've experienced who may have, you know, a positive experience with this? Sometimes we help older older people and, and other people with disabilities to overcome some of these deficits by means of um, giving them adaptive equipment. So for example, if somebody has got, let's just say a right leg amputation, or maybe a left arm that they can't use, we can provide them with hand controls. Uh, and so if they have hand controls, they don't have to worry about managing the brake or the gas. So in this case, um, it's really helpful to train them on the driving simulator with these hand controls so that they can develop a level of competency as well as confidence, uh, and we can increase their capabilities before we actually implement it in the vehicle and take them on the road. So as such, the simulator is a very, very useful assessment, but also training tool. Um, and of course, it's also a very highly technologically advanced piece of equipment. So one needs to understand all of the dynamics of the simulator to use it appropriately, like, like with any other you know, form of technology. Uh, yeah, so you're right. So that's one line of research. And then of course, the other line of research that's rapidly evolving is the autonomous vehicle. And it's not just the personal vehicle, but it's also, um, you know, public transportation, such as, for example, the use of autonomous shuttles, autonomous taxis, autonomous limousines, autonomous ride-sharing services, such as Uber and Lyft, the whole deal. And then we've got also got the traditional research where we are still taking people on the road in the vehicle and doing some behind-the-wheel training. So... We're staying busy. <laughs> so I, I just have a question. What would someone like me use the autonomous vehicle simulator for? How would that help me as a 30-something-year-old? Okay. So let me, let me ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. um, on a scale of 0 to 10, what is your level of trust in autonomous vehicles? <laughs> 10 being, 10 being, you are totally trust. It's totally trustworthy. I, I think I would give it a, a solid seven. A solid seven. I think I'm around the same too. You, you're about a seven too. Okay. So for both of you, in terms of your perception of safety, 
in an autonomous vehicle where you handle all con- we hand over all control, right? <laughs> How would you rate your perception of safety? Zero to ten, ten being optimally safe. I'd actually go up some, honestly. Like I think they are safer because they think better than I do. You know, like they their logic is only as flawed as as we are, as the top researchers in this area are. So I would give okay. it an eight. See, All I'm right. the other way around. I'm like, I know how computers work. And I also know <laughs> how you can't, you know, code every single possible situation or mm-hmm. a sensor could have a problem or, you know, it may not be the car itself, but it's interaction with other cars. So I'm a little go. lower on that. So mm-hmm. you want to be brave and give me a number? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, uh, maybe four. Okay, good. Wow, and then my, Kyla. <laughs> and then my final question is, If you have to rate yourself in terms of your intention to use such a vehicle right now, what would be your number to signify your intention to use such a vehicle? A fully automated one? Yep. I would Mm. say nine or 10 because I can just set that thing like a crock pot and go to sleep, (laughs) wake up in Atlanta and see family. But you don't trust it. Wait. I'm saying I intend to use it once it becomes trustworthy. Like that four isn't a a definite, it's not a a forever four, you know, it could have, it could move up over time with more research. She said today. (laughs) Oh, today. Oh, would I use it today? Uh, maybe in certain scenarios, like I think the like highway driving is more is less um, dynamic than like street driving where there's lots of lights and turns and signals. But the highway is pretty much the highway. You're just it's almost like cruise control, but with some lane changes as well. <laughs> okay, so I want your number, Kyla. Out oh of ten. So for today, for using it today, oh man, oh. I'm a ten. I would use it today. I'd Um, like to see some proof of concepts first. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm asking these questions because this is exactly the conversations that's going on with older drivers to be able to see how ready they are to adopt and accept or accept and adopt autonomous vehicle technology. So the automated simulator, Jeremy, to come back to your question, is a fantastic tool to do exactly that because folks can experience... Um, in a virtual environment, what it is to give the control up in the ve- of the vehicle and to observe how the vehicle is negotiating its own path, you know, whilst there's other motorists and pedestrians and cyclists and whatnot on the roads um, and, and do so safely. So it gives them a little bit more of a confidence to engage with the technology in a very, very low-risk environment. So as such, the simulator in our studies have shown to be very useful. And as a matter of fact, um, some of our preliminary findings of a study that we just completed suggest that the perceptions of older adults in terms of trust, safety, and intention to use increase after they are being exposed to an autonomous simulator compared to baseline where they had no exposure to any level of autonomy. So, you know, so so that's very liberating. That's very good news. And it opens up another avenue of how we can use the simulator. I really enjoy the Tesla personally. And I love the technology. I've, I've watched it grow, you know, from something that I would never purchase to something where I like, I'm like, I could have one of those, you know? <laughs> and for me, it's more so like I can be more productive, Mm-hmm. I, it frees me from, you know, 
I don't know, like the idea that I'm going to be stuck in something for a -hmm. certain amount of time doing the same thing every day. And while I do believe that, you know, I would want to be present and focused on what I'm doing, once the technology ultimately gets to the place where we don't have to do that, I'm going to be so excited. I would take a cross-country trip at that point. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think that, you know, that, and that's exactly the wonderful possibilities and potential that we are very excited about. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the tech, this, this technology is revolutionizing the transportation industry or the automotive industry, right? The last time that we saw change of this magnitude and on this level was in the early 1900s when Henry Ford introduced the Model T Ford car. And, and, and at that point in time, folks referred to that as the... Uh, as the horseless carriage, right? That was the yep. car. The automotive, <laughs> the automobile was referred to as the horseless carriage. So now we are referring to these vehicles as self-driving cars. Who know, who knows what the names are really going to be in a few years, how the lingo is going to change. But I think it's really, really interesting. And the other thing that is really interesting is that we are seeing that there's a paradigm shift. Right now, vehicles are being manufactured to make sure that if they are involved in a crash that the impact is minimal, right? So that's why we've got safety belt laws and why we've got airbags to deploy and you know certain parameters in the vehicle to reduce the impacts. And there's road features uh, such as rumble strips, for example, um, to keep people you know in their lanes. And, and if they go out of their lane, the rumble strip would give a vibration to the vehicle. So all of these features are there to, to, to minimize any kind of impact should the vehicle be in a crash. With the autonomous vehicle, the whole framework and the paradigm is totally changing. It's not to minimize the impact of a crash, it's to prevent a crash. All of these technologies will be working in such a way that most of, well, the, the hope is that all of the deaths will totally be prevented and that most of the crashes will also be prevented. But uh, it's also important to understand that a crash is usually a cumulative effect as, of human error environmental issues as well as vehicle-related issues. So autonomy can take care and override some of the human error and some of the vehicle-related issues, but we can't fully control the environment, right? So that's why we say that um, at least we want to move closer to that zero deaths when a crash occurs, but definitely a total decrease in crashes as well. Um, I teach a class on campus called Computers and Modern Society. And, you know, we talk about autonomous vehicles and I have students think about things like, you know, how should a vehicle decide on, let's say two autonomous vehicles, there's no way getting around, they're going to be in a collision. How did they decide the impact of said collision? How did they decide there's a person in the road? Do I swerve and perchance, you know, harm the driver or do I make a choice to hit this person, unfortunately? So how are these, can you talk about how these decisions are made in autonomous vehicles and like some of these ethical implications? So um, if you if you can imagine a traffic scenario, let's just say Archer Road um, at a five o'clock on a, on a Friday afternoon. And let's just say there's a pedestrian that's jaywalking and that's a little bit risky and runs across the road. So exactly, what does the vehicle do if it is in automated mode? Does it come to the stop with the, you know, with the effect that it's going to be rear-ended by um, the vehicle behind it? Does it swerve out to the left lane and potentially hit the car in the left lane? 
does it swerve out to the side of the road and hit a pedestrian that's standing there? You know, uh, what does it do? So, um, so these are not easy questions, and um, it, it truly is uh, of ethical concern. So I don't have the answer for you in terms of exactly how the processes are being um, um, thought out, you know, but um, I do have a great deal of uh, interest in this as well as a great deal of empathy for the folks who's doing it because it's, it's incredibly important to write these algorithms in such a way that it benefits everybody on the road. I've, I've mentioned a little bit about the education for the end user, but also how does the end user conceptualize what is going on with these vehicles, right? Um, the end user may have um, overuse of the vehicle, uh, disuse of the vehicle, abuse of the vehicle, um, you know, because they do, don't necessarily understand the technology. Um, you know, so over-reliance can happen. So let's just say, for example, if you have a backup camera in your, in your vehicle, so, you know, over-reliance may happen if you only look in the backup camera and you don't do a shoulder check and you don't check your side view mirror as well as your rear view mirror. That's considered over-reliance. The camera is not there to replace your responsibilities as the driver. It's there to enhance your comfort and convenience and safety. So let me talk about an area that I'm comfortable with. It's people with Parkinson's disease. What we are seeing with folks with Parkinson's disease, especially in the middle and the later stages, is that they may veer towards oncoming traffic. They drift out of their lane. And so um, if we prescribe that they need to drive a vehicle with a lane centering device or with a lane departure warning system on, and they override that function and turn it off, that would be considered disuse, right? Because they need the technology to be able to be, to be, able to be safe and to meet the expectations of driving. So all of these things that I've mentioned are part of the ethical equation. Yeah, so I really am interested in the idea that the state of Florida is super progressive in terms of what we're doing to meet the needs for our aging population. I mean, when you think about Florida, you think about all of the people who are moving here, um, to live out the rest of their lives after they retire because of the beautiful weather and all of the uh, things that this amazing state affords you. And I'm biased because I am a native Floridian. Um, <laughs> but when I think about that, I, I, I feel like part of the reason is because of the great work that we're doing here at the University of Florida. And so are there some research projects that are related to what we've been discussing that you could share more about that that help maybe even beyond our aging population. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, yes, and yes to everything that you have said. This is very, very functional research, and we are doing this research because we are passionate about people and making sure that we can enable them to, you know, to not only to drive, but to drive safely and to drive for as long as they possibly can. And that's not just for driving, that's also for community mobility or for alternative forms of transportation. Because at some point in time, you and I are going to outlive our driving lifetime. And it's because um, we understand driving to be not just a physical act of engaging with the steering wheel and with brakes and with gas and be in your car, but driving is really a way to be able to enhance your independence, your autonomy, 
your authority, your roles, as well as your participation in your community and in society. Hey, and you guys are invited to come participate in our research. We're enrolling yes. people between the ages of 18 and 65 right now. So it seems to me that that's your age range. <laughs> I can come do that. I can come do that. Dr. Clausen, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, this was always always fun talking to you, Jeremy. Yes, and I'm going to say my thank you as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Clausen. <laughs> Kyla, it was very nice talking to you. Yes. <laughs> This is Unstoppable Minds, a podcast out of the University of Florida. I'm Dr. Kyla McMullen. And I'm Dr. Jeremy Waysom. Thanks for joining us. Unstoppable Minds is a University of Florida podcast. Season two was produced, developed, and edited by Emily Cardinale and Patricia Vernon, with many thanks to Matthew Abramson and James Sullivan from WUFT. We would also like to thank the UF Office of Strategic Communications and Marketing video team, Brianne Leanne, Wise Clairvoyant, and Brian Sandusky. If you like what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more information about our show and the awesome students, faculty, and staff at the University of Florida by visiting our website at ufl.edu slash unstoppable minds. Until next time, go Gators! Gators!